0: This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Steven van Bellingham, and every month my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly Nextworks podcast. Today, I'm here with a small group of our team, but not the least. Uh, I have Julie vence Vos here. She's our CEO at Nextworks. And I have Pascal Coppens. He is our China expert. So welcome, Julie and Pascal.
1: Morning, Stephen. Hi, Stephen.
0: Hey, and Pascal, it's a really, really exciting week for you. Uh, we're making this recording on March 21st. And in just two days, you will launch your new book with the very yeah, relevant title, Can We Trust China? Yes. So, Pascal, in, in short, what is the book about and can you tell us if we really can trust China?
2: Well, the answer is, of course, uh, more than just one word. Uh, so I've spent, uh, I think, 12 months writing almost every day on this book to try and answer that very, very simple question. But yeah, it's an exciting week because I'm launching it this week. Today, I should have the first copy in my hand, so I can't wait to get it. And yeah, it's been a a real process to write it because originally, and I'm not sure if I mentioned that to you before, but originally my plan was to write a a follow-up on my first book, China's New Normal, a kind of 2.0 version. And and what did we miss uh, since uh, COVID on the innovation of China? But then I figured out that In the past two years, the perception of China has not improved as a country, and and definitely with what's happening today, people are really feeling that China is different than we are. And so I thought, well, instead of just writing another book on innovation and, and write the cool things that are happening in China, I should really answer the question that most people have on their mind, which is, can we actually trust the country? Can we trust the system? Can we trust Xi Jinping? What about the people? And how does that impact us in the future? in Europe, in the West. And so my book title is indeed, Can We Trust China? Because I think that's the question on many people's mind. And definitely today uh, with the world order that people are saying is starting to change or at least getting shaken by everything that's happening, I think it's very important to know where China stands and why they're doing certain things. So my book is, I could say it's simply... It's to try and depolarize the world. Uh, So it's a book that I'm trying to give more context, more nuance. I call that a qubit mindset that we uh, don't just think binary, but also try to understand how the other side of the world thinks and then everything in between and to figure out, I mean, whether we can trust China, everybody has to make their own conclusion and and have have to figure out themselves. But the more context you have, the more information you have, the easier it is, I think, to answer that question. But I end the book with saying, yes, you can trust China. (laughs) Uh, Spoiler. Uh, (laughs) But with certain parameters and and certain conditions. And also, I put that in context with the rest of the world as well. So that's very much what it's about. All right. And one of the really
0: cool topics in your book is a concept that you developed and called the circles of trust. Can you explain a little bit what you mean with that?
2: Yeah, it's one of the main topics that I've explored While I was writing the book, I had more and more this understanding of where the differences lie between how we look at China, how the Chinese look at themselves, how the Chinese look at us. And I put that into the context of circles of trust where, to put it simple, we have the network circles, the people that you know, which is your friends, your family, school, the work, everything you know, your network that is the internal circles. And then you have the external circles of trust, which is the system, is the nation, it's the institutions, it's the planet, everything that you don't really have an influence on, but that has an influence on your life. And so the less influence you have to change things, the bigger the circle of trust becomes. You have to trust it, but you cannot change it as much. And so the conclusion I came to after doing a lot of research and digging is that actually the West and China trust everything around them in the same way. We're as collectivist as China, which is maybe sounds strange, and China's as individualistic as we are, but we're looking at it from the other way around. So the network circles, the people you know, in China is much more collectivistic. And that is a lot about security and safety and keeping each other safe. While we are looking at the outside circles, like the system and the leaders and, and our institutions to keep us safe. And that's what we see now in the war in Ukraine. And in China, it's the opposite. And when you talk about the individualistic, it's also opposite, where we and Julie, uh, as companies, we really want to empower people. We want to empower employees. We want to work together. We, our friends are helping each other to go forward, to get a purpose in life, to advance in life. And in China, and that's the interesting thing about it, They expect the system and the outside circles to help them do that. So they want the outside circles, the system to help them improve in their life. And as long as, and this is why many people don't understand why Chinese trust the government or the system is because so far over the past 30 years, it has improved their lives. And as long as that continues, they're actually supporting and trusting the system and the government and everything and the outside circles And so this is like an inverse world, a different world, but with the same values. And that's what I wanted to come to at this book, that our values don't differ that much. It's just the way we look at the values. Is it an inside out or an outside in? And who do we trust to actually create those values or create a value for the things that we believe in? Mm. And so it sounds very complicated, but it's actually very simple. (laughs) And the interesting thing is that if you understand that... 90% of the perceptions we have about China, and specifically the negative perceptions we have, whether you say they're stealing, they're spying, they're, I mean, it's a dictatorship, all these things. If you inverse those two circles and have a different lens on it, so I call that a Chinese lens, then it doesn't justify everything, but it does explain it differently. And that is how Chinese look at it. And that's why we also are starting to have a disconnect between China and us, because we're looking at the same thing from a different lens. So my whole book is about that. And it's eight different chapters because there's eight different circles where from the smallest one, the individual, can you trust yourself? And then can you trust your family and, and friends? And, and why does it, so, is it so strong in China? And so I go bigger and bigger and bigger until the universe and culture, which is the biggest uh, circle, where it's really about, yeah, can you trust the future? And can you trust your dreams? Quite challenging for me was that I also addressed Pretty much every sensitive topic that we talk about when it comes to okay. China. And that's, of course, <laughs> already a reason enough to buy the book, is to see how do Chinese and how do we look at, at Hong Kong, for example, or the Taiwan question or South China Sea and the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And so, so I didn't go take uh, any okay. of these topics away. Yeah, Cool. And Pascal, I like the idea
0: that you mentioned that people trust the government because in the last 30 years it went well and the economy improved and there was more mm-hmm. middle class and so on. I feel you understand that. But imagine that the economy starts to slow down and that the rate of improvement is slowing down and that mm-hmm. China you know, stays more status quo and, and is becoming more like US and Europe where everything is more or less as it is. Mm-hmm. Do you think at that point the perception or the, the way that they look at their government that that would change? Or do you think this is so inherent to the culture
2: That even though things
0: will go bad,
2: people will still trust the
0: government? It's a
2: great question because I do believe that at that point, the government will have to reinvent itself. But it might still be another 30 or 50 years before they need to do that. We don't know that yet. But it looks like at the moment that the government is not helping the people to improve as much as they are now. That at one point, the government will have to be in the same boat as we are. And so trust will be not just based on success and achievements, but on other things as well. Yeah, It could be another few decades before that happens. So I think by the time it happens, unless there's, of course, something in the world that is completely changing everything, until that happens, I do believe that China will be way bigger than the US or Europe. And so the question is how they will deal with that. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I wish you uh, a lot of success. I think it's a great book that everyone should read. Where can people buy the book, uh, Pascal?
2: Well, it's available in Dutch this week and in a month from now in English. It's the easiest is to buy on my own website, pascalcoppins.com, because I can uh, ship both of them. But otherwise, it will be available on Amazon and, and all the other places and ball.com, of course, for Dutch. Okay. Can't well, wait. Yeah. Cannot wait to hold one of the copies.
1: Maybe um, just one question on the topic, because you obviously didn't write the book the last couple of weeks, uh, but I think with everything, when you said I touch every sensitive topic out there, I think what we're seeing in Ukraine these days, and I think the world is definitely watching China as well and their reaction. Is there anything that we can learn from your book um, to understand the reactions or what is happening with China and Russia?
2: Yes. Well, the unfortunate or fortunate situation about my book is that the last sentence I wrote was actually two days before the Olympics in Beijing started, the Winter Olympics, which meant we have the buildup of the military around Ukraine at that point. But there was no invasion of the country. And so I had no idea at that point that it was going to happen. And I also didn't expect it to happen looking at it from a China point of view, because China was really not expecting this either. If you look at the signs that you see in the way that the Chinese that were uh, in Ukraine were not at all warned that something was going to come. I mean, we in Belgium, we told everybody, stay out of Ukraine. China did not. And so I think they were as surprised as I was. So that was not part of my book. But I do believe that a lot of things that is happening in Ukraine today And I would talk about the period before the war actually started and the whole tensions that was between NATO and Russia is something that China felt as well. And so I could feel that there was a build-up. We just didn't expect, and when I say we, I'm talking about me and the whole China. We didn't expect that there would be an actual military invasion, but you could feel that tension building up, not just the months before, but the years before. And so many of the topics I talk about in my book is about also that tension that was building up and how China was looking at NATO specifically as being more and more dangerous. And that is, of course, not something we want to hear, but it is something that the Chinese felt we need to do something about it. So that's the only thing. But I also think if you look at it from today, again, these system circles and these network circles could give you a different view ...on why China is, for example, not doing sanctions on Russia... ...and why China is taking certain decisions that are not aligned with Western... And why uh, aren't
0: they doing the the sanction thing as well?
2: Yes, so so the the challenge is that China, and this is the view of Beijing... ...does not believe that sanctions is actually going to resolve the conflict that there is now. What it means is that they feel that the sanctions will hurt more people globally than actually resolve the issue. From a Chinese point of view, the sanctions so far has not helped Putin to actually slow down, just the opposite. And so they don't believe that this is the right strategy. But what they're really concerned about the sanctions, is there's two things. One is that, I mean, we should not forget that China already has had a lot of sanctions from the US in the past as well. Think about the trade war and the chips that they couldn't get access to and so on. And so they're not a big believer that this will actually resolve anything. But the other thing is that they feel that the sanctions are really starting to hurt people outside of Russia and Ukraine because of the lack of access to main uh, things like energy and 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 grains. And, of course, in the West, in Europe, in the U.S., this is maybe a big issue for us. But for certain countries like India, this could become an economic crisis that could last for years Uh, Some countries like Afghanistan and so on. I mean, they could actually have a humanitarian crisis on their hand if the sanctions continue. And so it's a really difficult balancing act, uh, these sanctions. But that's why China does not believe they should uh, participate in it. Of course, many people see that then if they don't give sanctions, they're actually helping Russia. But that is also not the case completely in the way that they are not helping as much as we would think of. For example, all the investments that they've done or that they were going to do in Russia have been halted at this stage. So the inv- Asian investment banks, but also if you just look at the reserve that uh, Russia has in Chinese currency, they've now increased that barrier, which means that the ruble has actually tumbled and the Chinese renminbi has gone up simply because they've given more room, wiggle room to actually have the currency exchange. So they're doing things that are not helping Russia, but we don't see these things because they're not direct sanctions, economic sanctions. What China is mainly concerned about is the humanitarian crisis it could cause globally. And of course, because this is a lot of countries around the Belt and Road, which means that they're all friends of China. They don't want these friends to get hurt even more today. So the sanctions in Chinese point of view is not going to make Putin change his mind. And so they look at it more like we should maybe figure out a more opportunistic way of solving it and, and helping Ukraine and helping Russia to actually solve these problems together, and and that is mainly through talks and diplomacy. And so China uh, has been trying to tell the world we need to have talks about peace. The U.S., NATO, we all need to get together and talk about positive things. Of course, that's incredibly difficult in the current situation with the humanitarian crisis. But we should not forget, and that's why China is so critical in this instant when it comes to the war in Ukraine, is that China is maybe the only, or Xi Jinping is maybe the only person that Putin is still wanting to listen to. And so that is also a position that is very interesting for the West to consider because he might change the mind of Putin. And so do we need to pressure Putin or, or do we need to give him a, a chance to get out of it? That's, that's the big debate right now. But can we trust China, Pascal, that they want to stop the war? I think China wants to stop the war. I mean, that's the officially, they've always said they want to stop the war because the war is hurting China more than it's helping China. So I don't see why they would not want to stop the war, uh, although that is something that men- people say, that China will benefit from the war. But having a Russia that is completely, has, has no more means is not really gonna help. The world order, if you could say, is being shaken because of what's happening in Ukraine. But from my perspective, and I wrote that in my very first book three years ago, The world order has already started changing globally with more and more emphasis on Asia. And so this is a natural transition. The war is just not natural. And and making that transition maybe faster or slower, we don't know, but it's not natural anymore. And China likes these natural transitions rather than, than disruptive transitions that could either help or hurt. But it's the unknown that they don't like. Okay. well, let's hope things
0: improve fast. And in the meantime, it's interesting to see some partnerships that are emerging out of all of this. Uh, Julie, I know you're a big fan of what's happening now with Starlink in Ukraine, how they are proceeding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, not taking position uh, either way, I think that's maybe a challenge these days. But I think it's fascinating What we can say is we're a fan of Elon Musk and what he has built and and how he has developed technology and innovation to change the world. And we all know Tesla, we all know SpaceX, but less than no is Starlink, I think. And I think it was a fascinating picture, the one, maybe you've seen it, the one with the truck with the Starlink dishes that Elon Musk actually delivered when Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, Mr. Fedorov, asked for them to Elon because they like internet access in the country, of course. So Starlink is a company that makes it really... Really, really easy to actually get access to the internet, in a way, with low-orbit satellites. But I think it's fascinating how, again, Elon Musk is developing solutions in a technological way and also collaborating worldwide to also share those opportunities. And there are pros and cons. They've been delivered, but a lot of people are saying as well it's a risk because BBC also mentions how it it could... um, actually reveal the location of certain people using it. And it's often used, for example, by the government or journalists, so so limited use. So, I mean, it's pros and cons of the story. But I think what I definitely want to spotlight is the fact that a private company, again, like he does with SpaceX, manages to develop a technology that has such an impact on such great moments that are important. And the second thing I want to highlight is the ease of use. I mean, if you look at the website, it's really like a box of Lego. You plug and play and you have internet access. And if you you know that so many places around the world are in difficult situations or just don't have access, I think it's fascinating to observe what Elon Musk wants to be doing with this. And actually, I'm I'm very curious for your uh, perspective on that, Stephen, as you were in L.A. with Nextworks last week and uh, you actually visited SpaceX and Starlink. So maybe you can add a little bit of color to the story as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, last week I was in L.A. during one of our learning expeditions there and we had the pleasure to visit the Starlink factory. We actually saw all the boxes there and there were like two piles, one said, for Ukraine, not for Ukraine. And the reason that they split it up is, and I cannot say everything they told us because of uh, confidentiality, but they changed a few things in the Starlink system. If you and me order a Starlink device now, we have to pay, what is it, four ninety nine dollars and a monthly subscription of $99. So it's quite expensive to do that. The ones in the UK are different. They have a different firmware on it. And because of that, they can just, as you mentioned, put it in the electricity and it's up and running. They don't need to do anything. Internet is just active. And they're also working on the location-based thing to make it less easy to find out where they are. So they're really making specific Starlink devices right now specifically to go to Ukraine. And that was really interesting to see. But we also discussed the whole mission of Starlink because the mission of Starlink is to give the three billion people in the world that don't have internet access yet, to give them internet access. But you can be critical about it and say, hey, it's 4.99 to get a device and then it's 100 per month that is more expensive than what most people pay for their internet right now. So how can the three billion people that cannot afford it, how can they afford Starlink? And, and this is for them, the phase that they're in right now is phase one. And the main goal of the next few years is cost reduction, cost reduction, cost reduction. It is the whole philosophy basically of everything that Elon Musk is doing. And when you look at Tesla, they started with the Model S, which was a car that costs more than $100,000. Today, a Tesla 3 Series is like $35,000. So they're reducing costs and they're making it more accessible for everyone. They're doing the same with SpaceX. Sending a rocket up is very expensive, but because of the fact that the technology is improving and that those rockets come back to earth and they can be reused over and over again, the cost to put a satellite in space has been reduced with almost 65% now. The same thing will happen with Starlink. They're experimenting, they're learning, and the end goal is that it becomes available for everyone at a very, very low cost. The end goal is that if you get into a plane that the internet has the same quality as in your house, and that it's close to being free to yourself, and the stories that they mentioned is crazy. Yeah? The the passion of Elon Musk in that whole story, you can feel that when they're talking about it, because they they told us, hey, we're thinking about okay, we're gonna have internet on a plane, and it's gonna be high quality. The only thing people will need to do is like with a hotel and register, you know, put their name in, then they have internet, and then Elon Musk says. No, 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 you don't understand. I don't want the registration thing. I want people to step in and they should have internet like they step into their own house. That's what we need to do. Not any button should be pushed wherever you are in the world. We need to do that. It's very extreme. And then they said, well, how can we test it on a plane? How can we test if it works? We need to make someone of our team said we need to make a deal with Boeing or with Airbus. And then we have to install our system in there. And then you see the pragmatic approach of Elon Musk. You know what he said? He said, guys, just take a plane, a small plane, and hold the device out of the window and see if it works. And that was a Friday afternoon meeting. And he says, well, let's try that out. And then the guy said, "Okay, we'll do that on Monday. And then Elon Musk said, no, 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 no. You don't really hurt my words. Try it out now. And it's Friday today. I'm not talking about Monday. So on Friday afternoon, the whole team of Starlink went to a local airport. They took a private jet, and they hold their device out of the window to test if it worked, and it worked fine. So now they know it's going to work on, uh, on planes. So it's it's amazing to see how mission-driven they are and how clear the vision is to really make that happen. We were, yeah, It was really, really impressive.
2: It's amazing to hear these things. One thing I've always wondered, and maybe you have the answer, Stephen, is why Elon Musk always, as you say, wants to go top-down and then basically cost reduction for many and not the other way around? Why not try and get more funding, more money to actually give it as cheap as possible, just like we have in software companies, and then try to make, figure out a business model later to make money? Is it because it's hardware, or is there a different reasoning behind or a different way, business model behind Elon Musk's uh, thinking? I think it's just the economics. this is not a software product that he's
0: making. And most of the stories in, in Silicon Valley or LA are software companies and then you can try something mm-hmm. small and see if it works or doesn't work if they create a car or a rocket and it doesn't work people will die eh? so you cannot say we're going to launch an app and then see what happens the impact is way too high and to make it mm-hmm. affordable from day one is impossible because you need to learn the effects you need to build things and improve them from there but to build the initial Hardware like a rocket or a car. It's extremely expensive to do. So it's Mm -hmm. it's just theoretically impossible Uh, SpaceX existed exactly 20 years when we were there It took them 20 years to create a cost reduction of of 60% to launch a rocket if they would have waited They would never have the cash flows of the early rockets, and it would never have been a success. Yeah,
1: Maybe a question, Stephen, uh, on that twenty years because you were there before, and I, I remember the first time you were at SpaceX. You were so impressed with their culture, as you mentioned. I mean, how mission-driven are these people? What is it still the same? Is it uh, how? Yeah, what have you observed this time?
0: It's it's the same, and they are so extreme. I've never met a company that is so extremely focused on their core mission. Uh, so, as we all know, SpaceX wants to be the company that colonizes Mars. They want to be the company that creates interplanetary humans. And we asked them, we say, you're doing all these things, these rockets and satellites and Starlink. How is the situation with going to Mars? Are you guys still focused on that? And they were like, yeah, every decision that we make, we ask ourselves, is this helping us to get to Mars? So if they have a commercial deal that is financially interesting, but it's no speeding up of the process of going to Mars, they say no. And the one thing that is now crucial for them to go to Mars is the Starship. They want to make sure that that big aircraft, the big rocket, it's about the size of a 380 of Airbus and it can hold 100 people. It's that kind of spaceship that will put people on Mars. That needs to be ready and operational as soon as possible. Because I've forgotten about that, but if you want to go to Mars, there's only a certain time slot where you can do that. And that time slot only comes back like every two and a half, every three years, because our planets are going further away from each other and then they're nearby. So you need to launch the rockets when you're close by. And even then it's still a six month journey. So they need the starships to do that. And the next window to go to Mars is 2024. So that's not so long anymore. So their goal is, that's the plan. Not sure if they will achieve it, but the plan is to launch what they call an armada of starships to Mars in 2024, all loaded with material and robots and all kind of automated equipment that has to do the pre-work to install a base on Mars. And those machines have like three years to start building. And then in 2027, they want to send the first thousands of people to Mars, again with an armada of starships, and make sure that those people can make the first uh, the first base. And in the meantime, their goal is to test out Starship with commercial space tourism. So as from next year, probably, you will be able to book a ticket to fly around the moon and come back with Starship and then enjoy the moon and then you come back. And those trips are just a few days, but that will help them, for instance, to understand how humans behave on those spaceships. Because my question was, what are you going to do to make sure that people don't start to kill each other if you're locked up in a plane for like six months to go to a planet? And then you arrive there and there's nothing there except some robots that are building something. And, I mean, that's going to be the biggest challenge. The technology part, I think they will manage to do so. But the human and the the interactivity between humans on such a mission, that's going to be extremely, extremely interesting. But they are so, so obsessed with that. And Elon Musk is so, so powerful in how he leads that company that I'm sure they're going to be the company that makes it happen. I have my doubts in all honesty if they will make 2024 because there's so much that needs to be done in those two years that you think is that going to be feasible or not. But their end goal, for instance, is to make a Starship rocket every day after a while so that they really can launch the armada of uh, spacecrafts to go to Mars.
2: Well, let's hope that we don't need to go to Mars <laughs> <laughs> because uh, with everything that's happening these days, uh, some people might think about it. But uh, indeed, it's uh, interesting, this whole story. Uh, I mean, I really love it. Uh, in China, there's also one that uh, just came out just uh, yesterday. I just wanted to add to this is that a Chinese uh, company is also trying to give a 100% real-time access to satellite images and videos that today are only reserved to boardrooms of military uh, generals. And so the whole idea is uh, that they want to launch this uh, low orbit or near earth orbit, low cost satellites all around the world. And this will start normally this project uh, in July, 2022, which means anyone with a smartphone could get the same resolution as many of the people in the world on everything. Of course, this will create a whole question and debate on privacy. Because suddenly everybody in the world could have uh, satellite images at less than one meter resolution, which means you can identify the brand of a car from these satellites. And so this is uh, another new topic from uh, just this week. I think in China there's a few things happening as well that are trying to change uh, how the world looks like from a technology point of view, an access point of view.
1: Thanks, Pascal. I think it's fascinating to know that and uh, we can't wait to also um, go back to China actually to see what's happening there and that you can share those findings with us. But uh, for now, um, of course, we will we'll always go to the West as well and uh, uh, SpaceX, you mentioned that um, Stephen, but um, other highlights of your week or things you've observed, what are the main takeaways of the, of the week?
0: Well, it was almost three years ago since I did an innovation tour in California. My last one was in China with Pascal and to be honest, I almost had forgotten how much I enjoy being in California. The vibes in LA were just amazing and the optimism, the can do it mentality is still like we used to know it before COVID. And of course, now the buzzword is metaverse, Web3, it's all over the place. And uh, I've been talking a lot about it in Europe in the last few months and weeks. And in Europe, you now have typically the European questions, huh? yeah, will it be okay? And crypto, it's not regulated, and this and that and that. We, we see all the downsides again. Being in, in LA for a week is so amazing in terms of positive energy, about looking for opportunities. How can we use the metaverse? What can we do with crypto? How can it help to create better customer experiences? And that vibe and that mindset made it clear again for me that we in Europe are gonna be lagging behind again towards the US because we're not looking at the opportunities enough. I think everyone who was with us during that tour is now looking personally for investments in the Web3 thing and doing things in the metaverse because there is no doubt that it will be a huge hit. The interesting thing is if you look at the metaverse for instance, is we went to a lot of smaller companies that are doing things there. And I have this David against Goliath feeling, every single startup that we went to in the metaverse or Web3 space hates Facebook so much. It's incredible. They all believe that Mark Zuckerberg has a lousy strategy. They believe that he doesn't know what he is talking about. They were all laughing with him. And we were in doubt. We were like, okay, it's really cool what you guys are all doing. But if you look at the assets that Meta, Facebook still has, I mean, they're investing billions in it every year. They have huge amount of talent. They have 2.5 or almost 3 billion people that they could scale it to. They have a link with the advertisers. I mean, I've seen some demos from startups. And even though they've been laughing with Mark Zuckerberg, for me, what they were doing was very close to what I see that Facebook is actually doing. So I'm not sure if their strategy is so completely different. And I'm not sure if all those startups will make it. I'm, I'm very anxious to see what will happen in this space and if new powerful players will pop up. I have my doubts. I think if you see how Yeah, at this point, the technology is not there yet. Everyone concluded that we're still going to need another five to seven years. And if you see what kind of improvements that we still need to make that a great customer experience, that's going to cost a fortune. The question is, will Facebook have that fortune or will all those startups have that fortune? So that's interesting, but there's a whole ecosystem of companies coming there. We've, We've been, for instance, to Metastage, which is a production facility to make sure that you can make holograms of humans that then can be used in the metaverse. They have all these production facilities. In Europe, you have to look for them. You have companies that are working on the software. You have advertising agencies that are really only just focusing on the metaverse. So that was really, really impressive. But then on the other hand, we used the offer you country fuse model from my book for the tour. So we talked a lot about the technology, like the metaphors and crypto stuff. But we also talked about having an impact on society and being a partner in life. And there's so many companies that are really, really mission-driven in the whole thing there. Like we've been to a company called Every Table. Their mission is to make sure that everyone in the United States can have access to healthy food. And their goal is to make sure that you have fresh, healthy food that is cheaper than McDonald's. Because in bad neighborhoods, in poorer neighborhoods, the only food that is available there is fast food. Unhealthy and it creates a negative circle for for the people living there. So they're going to less fortunate neighborhoods, bring in salads, fresh food, fresh soups, salads, uh, fruit, and make it cheaper than the price of a Big Mac menu in that specific neighborhood. But the really cool thing is that they're not just providing food in those neighborhoods, they also look for entrepreneurs. Like if you want to start a franchise for McDonald's in the US, they told us you need to put at least half a million dollars in cash on the table and then you need another half a million in loans from the bank. So most people who get a McDonald's franchise are like people who are 40 plus and did well in life. For most people that are less fortunate, it's not that easy to start their own franchise. So, at every table, what they do is they look for people who are willing to become entrepreneurs. They look for grants, for government support to give them the initial money. The rest can be loaned at a very low interest loan from their own organization. And because of that, the managers and the owners of every table restaurants are actually people who come from yeah, lower social class. But because of that, it helps them to become more successful in life. So, they want to create diverse entrepreneurship. And if you look at their you know, their investment model, their B2C model, they really have this strong mission to make a difference. And we've seen a number of those companies. And it's fascinating that in a city like LA, where the contrast is so big between the rich and the poor, where you have such an excitement for technology, that you also find that excitement for trying to improve the world. And the can-do mentality behind it, the optimism behind it, the capital of people willing to invest in all these companies, it's just amazing to see them. It's very, very impressive. I was really excited. I'm still hyper. I'm just back for two days. I'm still hyper after that week. And I could feel with our group, we had like 30, 35 people with us. I've never seen such an excitement from a group as this week. People were like all over the place that they could experience something like this after, you know, not witnessing that kind of optimism anymore after being stuck in Europe for two years. So that was maybe the best part of the tour.
1: Yeah, talking creativity, LA is, is. I know we we even positioned it with that feature uh, as well three years ago because you, you have that creative scene there, which is uh, unseen. And also, I mean, because of creativity, is only gonna get more important into the future because a lot of technology is automating a lot of different things. So it's really up to creativity to make the difference in work and life. I think absolutely. So. And
0: and the, the strange thing was for us, this was a completely different experience than what we had in the past because in this post-COVID world, a lot of people work remote. So for instance, we went to Snap, uh, the mother company of Snapchat. We had an amazing visit there. We had this like council start of the week. It's like a meditation exercise with the entire group. It was really cool. They have beautiful offices, but there were like 10 people in the offices. So they still didn't go back yet. Another thing that we've noticed is we used to go to startups. Now, startups don't have offices anymore. It's much more extreme, the post-COVID working environment than in Europe. Startups don't create offices anymore. They work remote or they have these beautiful new co-working spaces. Like we went to Second Home, which is seen as the most healthy place to work in LA. That place used to be an ugly parking lot. Now they filled it with like 5,000 tropical trees. There are tropical animals in there. And in between all these trees and animals, you have different open-air offices where you can work. It's amazing to see. And that's where those startups are going now. So it's a completely different approach because of the changes in how we work. Uh, And Julie, you've also been looking into data that a lot of tech companies are announcing back-to-the-office policies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been the topic of two years. I, I I have a repeat uh, button for this radar. Like, where are we? Are we getting back? Is it three days, two days? I mean, the, the day counting the days is a big thing uh, since COVID. But no jokes aside, indeed. I mean. The last couple of weeks, it was all over the place that tech companies like Apple and Google actually make it required to come back to the office for their employees. And I mean, it's been a challenge because they have very internationally driven people working for them. So they've been working remote and wherever they want uh, the last couple of years. So, But now they are actually making the move to really asking that. So, I mean, um, I think that the average of three days a week is is obvious. Both Apple and Google are requiring that. But then you see fun uh, features popping up like work from anywhere weeks that sort of give people the opportunity to still do that on the other hand we see the I would say the king of working remote Twitter who has since day one said, uh, guys, you can work wherever you want. You don't have to come back. They really stick to their plan and and are still saying that. So you see different strategies. I I really loved how you framed it, um, Stephen, because it is back. I mean, people coming back together, the energy that you feel, the experiences that it creates, that's really happening. And if it's in a building fine. Um, so I understand why those tech companies are doing it, because if you put people together in a nice place, things happen. Um, and it's different than being at your uh, at your laptop all day, all alone. Uh, it's just another vibe. Should that be in the office building or should you create other collision moments, creative collisions for people to share their missions, to share their ideas? I, I don't know that. And I think there's a lot of opportunity and experimentation ahead um, in, in that sense. But uh, I mean, we'll we'll see how it evolves and uh, whether people stick or leave uh, companies for the three days or not.
0: All right. We had a question also. We should address that. I almost forgot it. We have a question from Mario Major. He asked us um, what we think about instant gratification and gamification, and especially in an urban environment. And maybe that's something I can kick off with and, and feel free to to add whatever you guys have. But I think what we're seeing now is that the world is being gamified as a whole. Uh, The the techniques from games are being used in a business world, in online platforms. We're seeing it happening everywhere. Like we were at Snapchat, as I told you last week, and it's amazing to see, we we forgot almost that Snapchat existed. And and Snapchat is a platform, most of the people there are between 18 and 24. But we had a group of people all, let's say older than, than 40. We were all like between 40 and 60 all C-level people, and then when they rediscover Snapchat filters, I can tell you crazy things can happen in a group like that. So anyone from every age loves to have some more fun in their life, and that's where technology is helping us. Now, specifically what I've seen that is really cool is actually a Belgian company called KCC. And KCC, I'm very embarrassed that I didn't know about them earlier, but KCC is one of the leading companies to create indoor theme park experiences. And it's a Belgian company, and they work for many uh, operations in China and in the Middle East. Those are their biggest markets. And especially in the Middle East, and and Pascal maybe have examples of China as well, but especially in the Middle East, they're asking to really gamify their city environments. So the guys from KCC, they are like developing certain neighborhoods in certain cities that almost look like a theme park, that are really themed and that have gamification in it related to garbage or have gamification in it related to using less cars and and walk or take a bike where you can win points and then you you have some additional benefits because of that. That's something that you're starting to see. And I think that's an evolution that is now in its early phase. And I may believe that it's going to be linked to the metaverse. At the day that augmented reality works really well, uh, then we're going to have enhanced interfaces that really create Yeah, change the world into a game, basically. Imagine walking through New York with fantastically working AR glasses on. Now you see examples of GPS navigation or reviews from restaurants and all that. That's really okay, but it's still kind of boring. Uh, You can use your phone for that. I don't need glasses to that. But what if you change New York in one big game? We've seen the success of Pokemon Go that basically changed urban environments in a gaming
2: environment. What if you could do that next level? Then I think we're going to see crazy things popping up. When it comes to China, Stephen, this is something that uh, I've seen for many, many years, not with augmented reality as much in the past, but definitely you could see it in any aspect of life because Chinese, they love to have fun. They love to play games. I mean, they're, they're betting stuff. I mean, this is a gaming country. And Tencent, being the biggest uh, gaming company in the world, of course uh, has driven. I mean, we went to Tencent once as well, and mm-hmm. we saw their games and, and things they did. So, so this is really an environment. But uh, what I even wrote in my in my first book three years ago was really about Pinduoduo, this company that just beat Alibaba in five years' time just by having people play games connected with e-commerce. And so everything is starting to come together in China. It was already for a couple of years. That you could see that people, specifically people in the lower revenue areas or or poorer people, that they were having more time and they wanted to play more games to gain some benefits rather than the urban areas, which already uh, had everything they they needed. And so you saw in China the opposite. So you saw really that it was to have people that didn't get access to certain services and certain products to now encourage them through games to actually get access to that as well. And Pindado with their group buying, this was all about games. I don't know if I've ever explained this, but it was really about creating your orchard and then you could uh, get some fruit, all virtual. But then if you got the whole basket of fruit, then they would send you a basket of fruit, a real. And so this was connecting the real world with the virtual world at the same time. China has been doing this for a number of years, and now they're big into the metaverse as well, because they see exactly the same as you described in California, This is the future. This is where they see those two worlds converge. And so I'm very convinced that uh, the gamifying, I mean, craziness of China over the past years is going global. I'm not saying it's coming from China, but I do believe that it was already uh, present there. And the difference now is, of course, that uh, the technology is more advanced and we can do more things with augmented reality, virtual reality, which we couldn't three, four years ago. But for most of these Chinese, It was already an experience, and so you could see it happening. Uh, So they went already in the virtual world in some fashion because it was a different world for them. But now we all will go into that. I'm a big believer in everything related to gamification uh, because I've seen it just work in China.
1: Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, Pascal, we've seen it there, but it was very virtually driven. I think, indeed, a lot of storytelling that you see. Also, World Expo in Dubai, for example, um, is really linking the hardware to the story in a virtual way. And I think maybe that's a prelude for what we're about to experience with the metaverse as well. But I think that's fascinating to see. And also it positions a challenge for um, local governments, for cities, for example, if you, for example, I, uh, Stephen, you'll know that too. And in, in Bruges, you have a, uh, a tour that you can do and you can like meet virtually with the players of uh, Club Rugge, our favorite football team and the best in Belgium, of course. But uh, that that not mine. <laughs> but <that's
2: just> mine. <laughs> that, <laughs> I'm from Ghent. <Gans>. That fact <laughs> aside,
1: um, no, and, and I mean, what what will happen if like tons of of companies will start journeys or stories like that in your city? It it will become a challenge or or a task of the city to manage. Like, which story do you want your city to tell? So I, I kind of look forward how. um, yeah, how cities work with that and take the opportunity from it.
0: I went, uh, I think it was last year to Antwerp to the Van Gogh experience that they had. And there was also a virtual reality part where you actually traveled through the world where Van Gogh lived and they explained his paintings in virtual reality. It was one of the most amazing VR experiences I had. You can bring people back to history while they're walking into your city. It's uh, I mean, maybe they don't want to do this, but if you're in New York, you could actually relive 9-11. Today you go to a museum, to the memorial, but if you stand there outside with augmented reality, you can really let people feel what must have happened that day.
2: Do you think it will um, enhance travel or people will say, well, now I can do it virtually, I don't need to go there anymore? What, What do you think? I think it will enhance travel. I think people like
0: to sure. be in places. I'm, I'm 300% convinced of that. But I think that, you know, I talked about it last time. If you go to Disney, waiting in line, what if the line becomes an adventure filled with games and storytelling? Then it's no issue anymore to wait. If you're bored walking around, you can make it fun. Like you can follow little breadcrumbs from Snow White somewhere. So there's a lot that you can do to really enhance those experiences. I think 10 years
2: from now, it's gonna be a complete new experience to go to the outside world. I see that as well. And I do believe, I mean, we're talking always about virtual. But I think the online offline uh, offer will yeah. still, mm-hmm. still get enhanced, maybe because of the meta. But, uh, but online offline is going to be very strong, I think, yes. Yeah, I'm a much bigger believer of augmented reality
0: than, than virtual reality. I yep. think augmented Same will here. be something that we use probably every day. And I never thought about it like this, but someone told us most of us are already using augmented reality every day. Like in my car, for instance, I have this head-up display so I can see how fast I'm driving on my Front window of the car, I can see my my GPS system there. That's an example of augmented reality. It's basically the army who invented augmented reality for their fighter pilots. If you're flying an F-16, you see a lot of information on your windscreen. That's augmented reality, but it's very basic. The moment that you can enhance that, then it's going to be a completely different experience. So probably by 2030 or 2035, we're all going to be walking around wearing glasses. You guys are ready for it. You guys are ready for it. Just
1: trapping, you know. (laughs) But
0: it's also interesting to think about the metaverse and and VR then, for instance, for work. ah, Today, there's this issue between remote work or you have to go to the office. Today, I mean, the, the VR experiences for meetings are, for me, they're way too much like a gimmick. I get annoyed because it's not good enough, but I can imagine that that will change. And and today it still has an impact as Julie, office versus remote on how people behave and what their career is. What do you see in that space?
1: Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. We haven't seen anything yet in companies that are using VR for on-the-job training, for example, we've seen that at Walmart, we've seen that at companies in San Francisco, even already five years ago. Um, and I mean, the results that they were getting were phenomenal. Imagine if you if you have a certain job and you have to follow the safety procedures, and usually you get sort of the manual and you you have to read that. It's I mean, it's boring. And they were already using um, VR to actually make people experience what could happen. And I mean, that that leaves a, a way different memory so that people actually learn faster. So learning through experience, I'm a big, big believer of that. And I think that, indeed, virtual worlds can enhance that. That being said, indeed, it's, it's a big, big debate. And I think as with everything, it's not black and white. There's been quite some... Uh, some reaction to uh, Morgan Stanley's CEO, um, James Corbin, who actually said, I mean, you have to come to the office if you want a career and if you want to learn, because if you can go to a restaurant, you can go to the office, because otherwise, especially for the younger people, you don't meet other people, you don't meet your other colleagues, so you cannot learn. Of course, that's a bit on the black side. Uh, I think the, the The truth will be somewhere in between. I think companies on the one hand will have to start thinking about how do we want to offer skills training, on-the-job training for people who are remote. And then on the other hand, also, how are we going to offer learning experience? And we've talked a lot about experiences today. So uh, for me, there's no question about the fact that being together with other people in a certain place offers you experiences which you learn from. So I think both the companies have to think that through, but also employees who are saying, hey, I don't want to be with people, I don't want to be in places. They are actually also saying, I don't want that kind of learning. So I think in the learning mix, we're just seeing a lot of opportunity again as well, like what are people or companies going to do with that and which sort of academia are they going to offer their people So again, I think remote work is here to stay. Companies will have to adapt to that, embrace the technology. But also, on the other hand, I think people indeed have to think about not only their career, but mainly about learning. And if they don't go out again and meet other people, uh, that's also just not learning that way, I think.
2: Yeah. So maybe we will get more and more into a relationship uh, culture again, just like uh, China is, is very much where we go back to work to actually connect with people and That brings me back to the topic of my book, which is about trusting people. And so you need to connect to people to trust them and and trust is needed in business. And so I think maybe that's where it all comes back. And we're not just people doing things, but actually people thinking and and having a heart. And so I think there's a big change happening, which probably is for the good if you look at how it's evolving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We work often with freelancers as well, and they're saying the same. Like it gives you a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom, but you're not part of a larger team, a larger story. And I mean, they kind of miss that togetherness, I would say. You can you can tell.
0: Well, thank you, guys. Um, we're coming to the end of the episode. Maybe as a, as a small closing question, Julie, um, we've talked about the book of Pascal, uh, Can We Trust China? Book launch this week. I'll go to the store and buy it. But we also had uh, another book that came out from one of our other Nextworks partners, which is Rick Vera. The Power of Ecosystems. He launched a book last week. Can you maybe briefly say something about that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's book season, as you mentioned. Um, (laughs) So, uh, I mean, COVID will have to do something about that. But um, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, Rick uh, launched his book, um, yeah... Some time ago already, but this was sort of the physical lounge. <laughs> finally, given the COVID measures, of course. But his story about ecosystems has really, really resonated. And everywhere you go, you can see in every panel, every story, it's about collaboration between countries, between companies and it's easier said than done. It's difficult to to kind of really open your doors of a company. It's one of the reasons why Nextworks was fun and in the beginning, like watch outside the box and uh, open your perspective. That's one thing to see that, and it's another thing to actually start doing that. And I think uh, Rick with the ecosystem uh, business canvas actually indeed kind of... Um, shows the building blocks of what it could mean for your company that you can sort of decide like where do I play and where do I work together with other companies to build your own ecosystem because that collaboration is here to stay. I think that that is that is not new That is apparent uh, but it actually helps of course, to, uh, to think about it strategically. So it's, it's really a must-read. Um, and uh, I think people will have a lot of reading to do in the next uh, couple of weeks Absolutely. and
0: months. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was also impressed with Rick, his, his model. It's not just saying in his book, you have to work together, you have to have an ecosystem. He really has, as you mentioned, Chile all those building blocks. What is it that you need as an organization to be successful in the ecosystem economy? And I was really impressed with the in-depth, quality of his work. So I would also strongly recommend people to go for it. The official title of the book is The Guide to the Ecosystem Economy. You can buy it on Rick's website, which is rickvera.com. You can find it in the traditional bookstores. But The Guide to the Ecosystem Economy is a book by Nextworks that, of course, we strongly recommend. All right. Well, Pascal, Julie, thank you for being here in this episode of Radar. Thanks to all our listeners. If you have specific questions for us that you would like us to tackle in one of the next episodes, just let us know on any social network where you can find us or to the Nextworks social platforms, and we'll be happy to tackle your question in one of the next episodes. So thanks for listening, and we hope to hear you again next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.